Hello and welcome to Valina's Talk. My guest today is Peter Zion and we will be talking geopolitics. This podcast is actually possible due to the cooperation with Bharat Varta, one of India's leading podcast producers on politics and society. Thank you very much for coming. And I'm extremely delighted to cover with you so many uncomfortable, I would say, issues from the world of geopolitics and to talk with someone like like you who have been actually in the field for more than 20 years now. I think it's the best title that we could pick, (laughs) namely the mapping of the collapse of the global order. And I will actually start with a quote from your most recent book. Meanwhile, you have authored so many, so many good books, but we don't have time to cover all of them. So I will start with a quote from your most recent book. And that says, the world's demographic structure passed the point of no return 20 to 40 years ago. The 2020s are the decade when it all breaks apart. Sure. So the demographic story is pretty straightforward. When the world started to globalize, we started to industrialize and urbanize. And so as we moved from the farm and into the city, we changed our attitude towards children. And on the farm, kids are free labor. You have as many as you can put up with, plus one, because that's how you find out it's too many. But when you're in the city, they're an expense. So we went from having seven kids to less than two, pretty much everywhere. And this process in many countries began in the 40s. In the case of the Germans, it started before that. In the case of, say, the advanced developing world, Mexico, Brazil, and such, it started in the 90s. But we've all been on this same path. And the countries that started the process later have urbanized faster and so seen their birth rates drop faster, with China being at the top of that list. The 2020s were always going to be the decade where most of the world's major economies flipped not from having too many children to too many adults, but from too many adults to too many retirees. So in an environment where you have a lot of young people, you know, your consumption led economic growth, a lot of labor, you can get a lot of more organic growth that way. When you have a lot of people in their forties and fifties, they're wealthier, they're more productive, but they don't have kids anymore. So you get a lot of high octane growth because it can be more technologically based. But once they get into their sixties, it's over. And so we're going to see it basically ending in places like Germany and Italy and Belgium and Japan and Korea and China this decade. And we don't have an economic model for what comes next. However, there is one country I could think of that is well positioned in terms of demographics, and that is India. Will India rise geopolitically? It has already taken over China in terms of demographics? Well, let's start with the data there. India overtook China probably almost a decade ago. The Chinese have started to revise their data. They're admitting that they overcounted by over 100 million people. So India has been the world's largest country in terms of population for some time. However, that transition as you urbanize and have fewer children, that has hit India as well. And since India was kind of a latecomer, not starting its industrial process until the 80s, it happened there much more quickly than it didn't say in Europe. So I don't mean to suggest that India is facing a dark future, not what I'm saying, but their demographic moment is now, not in the past. They have a, basically the pyramid starts with older people, comes down to people in their fifties and then their forties. And when you hit the thirties in India, it then goes almost straight down. The birth rate halved 
back in the 90s, and it has not bounced back. Now, that means at this moment in time, India does kind of have the magic mix. Because if you've got a, a lot of young adults who are you know, 20 to 40, but not a huge number of kids, the money that they would have spent on their kids, they spend on themselves. And you get a lot higher quality of growth because when you're building homes and buying cars, that's going to just generate more follow-on growth than when you're buying diapers and taking care of childcare. So there's this 20-year period that the Indians have in front of them where they're going to have much more robust growth. But if their birth rate continues to drop, then 30 years from now, they're going to be looking at a situation like the Germans are facing today. Now, there's a lot that can go wrong and right in 30 years, but it is something to keep in mind. The youngest country in India's cohort is Mexico. They started the process a little bit later. The birth rate didn't drop quite as much. And the fact that they're partnered with the United States really helps. And when you want to talk about shining India, the idea of India as a major global power, you got to remember this. India has no partners at all. So Mexico can partner with the United States. Indonesia can partner with Vietnam and Singapore and Taiwan and Japan. India is on its own. Just the cultural norms of the country make it very difficult for it to see anyone else as an ally or even as a friend. And so any sort of manufacturing boom in India, which will happen, will have to be based entirely on Indian factors. And that's going to challenge the cost and the quality and everything else that goes along with that. So do I think India's got a great half century ahead of it? Yes, but by itself, not as part of a network that can help it. India is going to bet on India, so to say. But let's focus on two, probably two stories that are most striking. And these are the stories of China and the story of Europe. Maybe first, let's begin first with China, because you don't have a lot of good news considering China's geopolitical positioning in this transitionary period of the international relations? I think the biggest surprise that's going to be happening to most this decade is the collapse of China as, an, as a functional nation state. Their demographics are beyond terminal, and that was before they admitted that they were miscounted by 100 million, and all the 100 million would have been people under age 40. So there's no point that they can support their existing population. There's no way that they can repopulate anymore. Their financial system is expanded by a factor of 34. <laughs> since the year 2000, but their economy is barely quadrupled. So that's the biggest debt bill we have seen in any country in human history. And now their payback for the new debt is minimal. So we've seen growth basically collapse from the 9% and 10% to like the 1% to 3%. And that's assuming you buy Chinese statistics, which I do not. They are completely dependent on the import of raw materials to support their agricultural and their energy system. And with the Ukraine war, they are now getting crude that is going west out of Russia to the Baltic, goes around Europe, goes through Suez, goes by India, goes by Vietnam, goes by Taiwan on the way in. So it's the most insecure energy supply line ever. And they're completely dependent upon the U.S. Navy to protect their global shipping. And their war plan for Taiwan, I love this, their war plan for Taiwan is so dumb. Like, we're going to sink all American ships within range and take the island, but the U.S. Navy everywhere else in the world is going to continue to protect our corporate shipping. That is literally their plan. That is like the, the second dumbest thing I've heard in the last 20 years. The dumbest thing also involves China. We can talk about the spy balloon if you want to later. And then you throw in the cult of personality, which means that the Chinese are now so ossified that information is not even flowing within their own government and they can't make competent decisions anymore. Uh, you add it all up and China has had a great moment. 
But most of what has allowed China to become the China we know today is globalization. And the Americans aren't maintaining that anymore. And the other part of it is urbanization, which gives you growth, but you can only move people from the countryside to the city once. And if you can't keep that birth rate up, then they collapse. And that's exactly what we're facing this decade. So does that mean that you see actually a military attack on Taiwan? Or are you actually belonging to those experts who do not see a military attack, a direct imminent military attack on Taiwan? Because right now I have the impression that the American expert community is quite split on the matter mm -hmm. and in the international one as well. We have a lot of hoax, but we also have a lot of, I would say, rather less experts who are cautious on that matter. And I myself don't see an imminent military attack on Taiwan. So I would like to hear your opinion on that. I don't think anyone thinks it's imminent. The Chinese don't think they have sufficient command and control in order to, um, to manage an operation today. They're thinking that maybe they can do it in a few years. And you're right, the community is split at all levels. I tend to veer towards the it's never going to happen. Let me kind of lay that out. When you decide you're going to invade a country, there's certain things that you prepare for because you don't just like pull the trigger. So the Chinese have always found the Russians to be useful idiots. So if they're going to do something that's a little sketchy, they try to get the Russians to do it first to see how it goes. And so when they look at Ukraine, they're like, you know, you have to walk from Moscow to Kiev and the Ukrainians have only been preparing for eight years. And this war suddenly has gotten a lot more complicated than we thought. We've always known that Taiwan was going to be more difficult because it's going to be a naval assault. So assumption one, gone. Assumption two, Russian weapons are awesome. So they stole all the IP from the Russians and spent $3 trillion outfitting their troops. And now they're having some very serious buyer's remorse. The third assumption is that Russia and China are far too important to the global system, so no one will sanction them. Well, that's gone. But I think what's most terrified them is companies just walking away. I mean, there was something like $60 billion in foreign direct investment into the Russian system that was just abandoned because countries didn't want to be associated with the dictatorial genocidal government at war. And so most of what they've planned for in terms of the environment has shifted. If you add in the fact that if there was a war, it would be very easy for the United States or Japan or Vietnam or India or Australia to simply cut the trade artery, which would lead to a deindustrialization and a famine in under a year. You know, the cost of doing this to them would be extreme. So from my point of view, it's almost not worth considering. The, the, the one bit of pause that I've got is because this is a cult of personality system. And when one person sets the tone for the propaganda and then just lets it run, crazy stuff happens. And in this case, the Chinese believe, because of their propaganda, that they're so important that no one will really lift a finger. There might be some minor sanctions for a few years, and that's it. On the battlefield, they believe that they could probably capture the island in two weeks because it takes six weeks for the U.S. to sail from San Diego to get there in the first place. So as long as they do it quick, they're fine. You know, let's assume that that's right. That doesn't help their problem with oil tankers transiting by India and Vietnam and the rest. So their belief is that the world won't do anything. And I would say that in the aftermath of Russia, that is a really, really stupid position to take. But in a cult of personality, taking stupid positions is how you show your loyalty. Another 
major issue where we see that the expert community is quite split is this kind of topic of World War Three versus Cold War 2.0. Now, you obviously made the case that, well, America was the reason for China's rise and now will be also the main reason for China's demise in terms of geoeconomic decline and in not just the demographic factors. So what is your take? Are we sliding into a Cold War 2.0 scenario in which we see that China and Russia are obviously interested in creating a credible counterweight to U.S. global power projection? Or is it that there will be Pax Americana 2.0, that America will emerge out of this you know, episode with Russia's war against Ukraine and with the non existent, okay, real threat, but non-existent risk of military attack on Taiwan in the South China region. What is your main case? And of course, where do you see Uh Europe being, you know, being positioned in all of this with the second, as I alert to a second case for a devastating, I would say, geopolitical and geoeconomic story in this decade? I don't think we're looking at either of those scenarios. The Russians are utterly incapable of providing an alternative pole. And that's one of the reasons why no one has really sided with them in any meaningful way in the Ukraine war. Their economy just can't support it. Their infrastructure can't support it. Their technological system has apparently failed and their demographics are terminal. So none of these things are likely to get much better. They may be able to eventually fully mobilize and bring more of their industry into the fight. I'm a little surprised that hasn't happened already considering the stakes. But that is for Russia. That is for their near abroad. That is for trying to establish an outer crustal defense. That is not to become an independent pole. And then the Chinese, they're a massive exporter, which means that they need markets to dump all their product on. And so there is no sort of partnership with the, in, with the, with the Chinese that allows another country to do well. They just become a dumping ground or a source of raw materials. So people might want... The dream situation for a lot of countries is the Americans provide the security and the Chinese provide the economic access, but that wasn't ever going to work, even if politics in the United States supported it, which it does not. The Chinese moment is almost over because of demographic situations. So I don't think we'll see a hot war with these two powers. I don't think we'll even see a meaningful cold war more than a few years with the Chinese. The Russians, the, the goal here of the West is to is support Ukraine as much as possible, because as long as Ukraine is in the fight, so long as Ukraine is independent, the Russians can't get that outer crustal defense, and they will be constantly on the strategic defensive until they disassociate. I don't think that's going to happen this decade. I think the Russians have a lot more road ahead of them than the Chinese, but it does put them in a bit of a box. And as for Europe and the rest... To get back to where we were during the Cold War economically, I don't think that's possible either. What made the global system work is the United States subsidized everybody's security systems and then provided global coverage navally so that anyone could ship anything to anywhere. We no longer have a Navy that is built for that. And one of the things we've seen in, say, the Persian Gulf of late is the Iranians have now grabbed, I believe, a half a dozen tankers. And aside from issuing a press release, the U.S. Navy has done nothing. Had that happened in the 70s or the 80s, we would have sunk quite a few Iranian naval assets and probably taken out a few offshore oil platforms to boot. But we no longer have the destroyer-heavy force that is necessary to patrol the seas for global commerce. We're heavy on supercarriers now. 
And in that sort of environment, we can't provide the security and you could even argue we can't provide the economic subsidization anymore. Because remember, we now, the United States, does we do have a substantial number of millennials and young people to provide that consumption-led system. Europe no longer does. So there just aren't enough people in wealthy countries that are in that consumption-driven stage of their life to support global commerce anymore. And there's certainly not in Japan or Korea or China or Germany or Italy. So we need a new economic model everywhere except Southeast Asia and North America. There the old system can work. And that's why these systems are getting tighter and tighter and closer to closer together economically. But that is not a global trade order. That's a regional trade order. And that can work but it does leave everyone else on the outside. You also said about Europe, they globalize and Europe's demographics and lack of global reach suggest that permanent recession is among the better interpretations of the geopolitical tea leaves. I, don't, I do not see a path forward in which the core of the European socialist democratic model can survive. And just to give one concrete example from the reality, Germany already has to cover one third of its GDP for the welfare system. And that is, you know, as of today, given all the realities that you pointed out, and you are also pointing out in your book, namely that 15 to 20 million Germans will get retired in the next, in this, in the next decade altogether. I mean, this is already one quarter of the whole population. Is it that we have practically built a socialist democratic model while actually capitalizing on the security dividends from the American umbrella, so to say. Oh, absolutely. That's why. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, if you look back at Europe's history, it's a little rough. And so coming up with a political economic model that kept political protest under control and incorporated it into the political system rather than involving shooting, this is a big win for Europe. But because of the urbanization trend, it's it's been a one-off. What we're going to see over the next decade, maybe two decades, is as the United States pulls away from maintaining the economic coherence of the broader system, the EU, I think, is going to go away. As the Germans hit mass retirement this decade, it's going to be impossible for the Germans to pay for the existence of the European Union. If you take the single biggest provider of funds and turn them into a net beneficiary, there's no way the EU can survive in that environment. You will have countries leading left and right with probably the French the first out the door. The French, ironically, have one of the best demographies in the advanced world. And so the idea of France being the single largest payer in the EU in order to subsidize the existence of Germany, oh my, I don't see that happening. The German, or sorry, the French plan since the beginning is to get the Germans to pay for everything. It's not going to work once we get to that point, which means that we're going to get a regional breakup of the European system. You'll probably get a Scandinavian network where the demographics are pretty good and the partnership with London and Washington is tight. We're seeing that already with the Swedes and the Finns moving towards NATO. You'll definitely get to get a Francophone world that is all its own. Iberia will probably, under Mexican sponsorship, apply for NATO membership. And then there's the big open question of what happens in Central Europe because that's where the demographic decline is most extreme. And unlike the Italians, they're on the wrong side of the Alps. They can't be a pocket power by themselves. That's easy for the U.S. to pick up. It's just too big of an area with too entrenched of economic issues. And so the question in the United States will be, are there countries in the future for Europe that we are willing to pay for them to continue to exist? 
And before you rule that out completely, remember, we've done that for Israel and Armenia and Egypt and Jordan for a very long time. So it, you can't rule it out. It's just that Germany is a lot of water to carry. That's a big place with a big economy and supporting it will not be cheap. This is not Greece. This is a real hefty place. It'll be expensive. And that brings me to the next question that will yeah, obviously will be centered around your scenario for the outcome of Russia's war against Ukraine. Also linked to it, the question about the future Iron Curtain being deployed along these exact Nordic, Central Eastern European countries, practically an invisible Iron Curtain. And yet this would be the eastern flank of NATO because, you know, in the future, as you also pointed out, Russia will always try to, you know, no matter how the outcome of the war will be right now, but Russia will always try to, you know, inflict a pain on Ukraine and actually solve this geopolitical issue for itself. And linked to this third question, this is a kind of series of questions on Russia. Do you see also the use of tactical nuclear weapons or also the question that where, where most of the expert community split on is the question of the possible dissolution of the Russian Federation. Do you see? Because you pointed to possible dissolution of China for other reasons, but still, do you see also a dissolution of the Russian Federation in the future? Well, that's like an hour presentation right there. Okay. Let's start with the nukes because that's the simplest. I don't think they're going to come into play anytime soon if they do come into play at all. There's no reason for Russia to nuke Ukraine because they want to occupy it. There was a moment last year when if they would have nuked, say, Warsaw, Berlin, and Stockholm, they could have disrupted the weapon flows. But in the aftermath of the Battle of Kharkiv, when the Ukrainians captured so much Russian equipment, that logic largely went away. And any direct strike on the United States will be met with an immediate retaliation. And the United States has made it very clear to Vladimir Putin personally that if you think you can fling a nuke into the Western Hemisphere, the first few that come back are coming for you personally. And we know exactly where you are because we've been listening to your phone calls and reading your emails since the beginning of this and then publishing everything immediately. So don't think that you're insulated from this if you decide to go down that route. So I think that is off the table so long as the battle remains within Ukraine. Now, as for the, the curtain, it's a little... Less, it's a lot less substantial than it was during the Cold War. And that all had to do with the Battle of Kiev. When it became apparent that the Russians were incompetent, not just at combined warfare, combined arms warfare, but warfare in general, that this was just a mob with weapons, everyone in Washington got really scared. Because we know that when the Russians are done with Ukraine, they're coming for Poland. And NATO needed to get ready for that. But when it became apparent that this was actually a fair fight in Ukraine, you know, an underarmed, undertrained force versus the world's second largest standing army, and it was a fair fight somehow. Everyone got worried because if the Russians are able to subdue Ukraine, when they come to Poland, it's not going to be a fight. It's going to be a slaughter. NATO forces versus Russia, you know, you're talking about casualty ratios in excess of 100 to 1,000 to 1. I mean, it'll be a blowout. And in that scenario, the Russians will use nukes. So the decision was made early that any weapon system that the Ukrainians can prove that they can operate and maintain, very important detail, maintain, they can have. 
And so we've just been steadily ratcheting up the technical assistance in order to help them absorb as much as possible. F-16s are the newest one, and this will continue. Because as long as we keep the fight in Ukraine, then we don't have to worry about a general nuclear exchange over Poland or Romania or Latvia or now Finland. The risk moving forward, and I don't think we're going to reach this this year, is let's say the Ukrainians are wildly successful and they manage to get the Russians out of all of their territory inside, including Crimea. That doesn't stop the war. The Russians will keep pushing until they can't. Now that they've paid the price for a war but gotten none of the benefits, yeah, they, they can't back down now. It would lead to national disintegration. It would lead to government disintegration. Russia usually faces revolutions when it's defeated in a war, which means that Ukraine has to cross the border into Russia to break up the logistical capacity of the Russians to launch the war in the first place. And at a minimum, that means neutralizing Belgorod and Rostov-on-Don. And now if you've got Ukrainian forces crossing the border, all of a sudden the nuclear question comes back into play from a defensive point of view. So we are only at the very beginning of this conflict. I gotta admit, I am shocked at how well the Ukrainians have done. I've never been so happy to be wrong. I was convinced that this was all gonna be wrapped up in under a year, but the Russians can't back down. And in the end of the day, if the Ukrainians are great, they have to push forward. So this is going to become a broader conflict one way or another. And that introduces a lot of wild cards that we're not ready for. And I'm not sure we can be ready for. That means presidential election next year, 17th of March in Moscow. We'll see. Vladimir I haven't Vladimir paid attention Putin to as... Russian elections since the 90s. No, but in a sense, it is obviously your scenario is obviously pointing to a war of attrition. And after even after this successful episode in which Ukraine will be successful in terms of counteroffensives, we should be mindful of the fact that after a political break, let's put it that way, <laughs> there will be a new push back by the Russians. Also, they have fortified the front lines. They have prepared for, you know, their defense lines for the counteroffensives. Would you see in this, let's say, protracting war, would you see a scenario in which China would consider providing military aid to Russia? Uh, you know, knowing that Moscow has been struggling and they are in a dire need for production of ammunition, technical equipment, and so on? Well, let's start with the, the offensive issue. The problem with predicting what's going to happen with this war is for the Ukrainians are doing everything for the first time. So they repelled an assault for the first time using irregular forces. They launched an infantry-heavy assault on Kharkiv for the first time. They're now getting ready to do a combined arms for the first time. Just we have no track record here to draw from. As for the Russians, they have underperformed by every possible measure. And so, yes, they've built a lot of defensive fortifications. But if their defensive fortifications were built like their military was planned, well, then they're probably not worth anything. So we just don't know. As for the Chinese... I don't think so. I think we'd have to have a pretty sharp change in circumstance for the Chinese to even consider getting involved. They know that if they provide lethal aid, that that will flip the Europeans from being neutral to hostile. And we're actually kind of edging in that direction already. It's really only the Germans and the French who are still kind of towing the line that we need to have a constructive partnership with the Chinese. Weapons would shift that completely. The Germans really have bellied up to the bar over the course of the last six months, and they're, they're in it to win it now. 
that doesn't mean that the Chinese can't provide some assistance. There's non-lethal aid that is already flowing, and more importantly are the semiconductors that can come up and help the Russians finish some of the weapons that they used to rely on off-the-shelf technology from the West, which I always thought was, from a security point of view, really, really, really dumb. But, you know, globalization has done some strange things. So the Chinese are now the primary vehicle for getting that sort of help in. And that is really important. If there was some way to lock that off, it would really hurt the Russians in terms of missiles and especially optics on things like tanks. But for now, those flows are there. Providing more than that risks a rupture. And in the today's environment, when the Chinese are under pressure from so many different angles, someone targeting trade directly would probably enough be enough to push them over the edge. When it comes to analyzing the current geopolitical and geoeconomic processes, there is also the question about the technological competition and then the question about the energy transition. Because as we've seen in the past, every industrial revolution was also accompanied by the decision to move towards, or let's say to shift towards new energy sources. And this time it is about decarbonization in the West versus Obviously, at least when it comes to China, India, ASEAN countries, they are, well, setting very different goals in terms of greening or decarbonizing, greening the economy, decarbonization. So you are not very, very optimistic when it comes to the goals of decarbonization in the West, and you're giving a lot of examples. Why is it so? What is the short version specifically? Are we going to see actually a negative outcome from this political decision? My biggest fear is linked to, once again, geopolitics. And that is that in the case of Europe, 98% of all of the critical raw materials, rare arts for, you know, this exact green transition are coming from one single supplier, and that is China. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid that the green transition in its current form is a horrible idea. The technology really just isn't ready. Solar panels and wind turbines are great if you're in places that are sol sunny or windy, but that's not where 85% of the world's population lives. And in most places, especially places like Moscow or Berlin or Paris or New York or Toronto, if you put up solar panels, you're never going to generate enough electricity to pay down the carbon debt that it took to build them in the first place. Just leave the economics to the side. The carbon side is a disaster. But there's a broader problem here, and that's we won't be able to build the stuff in the first place. If we really do want to decarbonize and hit net zero, then by the year 2030, we need two to three times as much copper and 10 times as much nickel and 18 times as much lithium and on and on and on and on. Humanity has never doubled the volume of any industrial material that was already in use in a 10-year period. And now we have to do this for 11 different materials and a lot more than doubling. No, can't be done. Now, there's enough out there for the United States, but that would require the United States conquering Congo and taking a big bite of, out of northern Russia and parts of northern China and South Africa. You know, that's probably not going to happen. We just need a new technological breakthrough in material science before we do this at scale. So I'm, I'm concerned that a lot of what we're doing right now is wasting capital and increasing our carbon footprint in the name of reducing our carbon footprint. Well, I was also thinking about the role of international institutions. Now, we moved, at least in the last decade, from too big to fail banks towards big tech. Then, meanwhile, we are in a scenario of what I call too central to fail, namely the monetary, the unprecedented monetary policy of central banks and 
their role actually for global economy. How do you place actually the role of international organizations and institutions in your geopolitical assessment? And actually, are you bullish on one specific state actor or let's say a group of state actors where you say, okay, in this precarious decade, there is this indeed very positive story or is this positive story namely linked to United States or maybe, like I said, another specific country? In my case, I'm very bullish on India because I really think that because of this equidistance, as you describe, India betting on India and having the demographics and the regional power projection and being capable and willing to actually step in and protect its own interests by military force, contrary to the European Union and to the European powers. I'm for, for now at least very bullish on India. Is it that you are also bullish on a specific country or on a specific state of, let's say, group of states? Let, let's start by saying that when it comes to international institutions, they only have as much power as their member states give them. And that makes them fairly truncated. They're talk shops. That's useful but they're not into governance in any meaningful way. The institution that's going to be most important moving forward is the U.S. Federal Reserve. We're entering a world where most of the major countries don't have enough young people to consume. And what is monetary policy, if not the ability to regulate consumption? So we have exited the last period of synchronized global consumption-led growth. We'll never have that again because there aren't enough people. And when we get to the next downturn, whenever that is, only the Federal Reserve is going to have the tools necessary in order to stimulate consumption in the United States again, which means the United States de facto is going to be setting monetary policy for the world because the Europeans, the Japanese and the rest won't be able to do anything. It doesn't matter if you drop interest rates, if there's no one there to buy. So we're seeing this breakup and this unification of the global economic system all at the same time with one authority basically setting policy for everyone, but the trade links that allowed that policy to percolate everywhere more or less going away. We're, we're entering unknown territory here. I mean, we've had ups and downs and unifications and breakups and trade systems over and over and over through history, but we've never had the sort of build that we've seen under globalization, where we basically all joined a single global whole with differentiated supply chains and materials crossing the globe as a matter of course. There was also always population growth before. So even if you did break away, you'd still have something to build on. We don't have that anymore. Let's put this as a final question. Are you bullish on a specific, on a specific Oh, uh, sure. Yeah. Sorry. I forgot about country. that one. Okay. So if we do have a degree of breakup, there are places that have more going for them than others. One of the big things about globalization is the United States basically declared that geography doesn't matter, that we'll take care of security. You can access our market and everyone else's market as long as you side with us against the Soviets. And that created the global system. You break that down and geography matters again because you're going to have to do a lot of it yourselves. The four countries that kind of have the magic mix of geographic features that give them security and an economic shot are France, especially post-EU, Turkey today, although they have to get through a financial crisis first, Japan, which even though it has horrible demographics, it's been grappling with this and addressing that issue now for 40 years and has done a decent job. And Argentina, which I will never say as a country you should follow financially, but they have the assets and the physical location to persist in their current form for at least another century. And compared to most countries, that's that's just not on the cards. Those 
plus the United States. Those five are the ones that are going to be able to influence their own neighborhoods to their own liking. And then there's kind of a secondary set where the demographics are pretty good, the security is pretty good. They won't be able to project power, but they're going to be very good by themselves. All of Southeast Asia falls into that bucket. And a fair amount of Latin America, especially Mexico, does as well. So we're, it's not that we're going to see a world of no growth. It's we're going to see a very split world with some parts of it doing very, very well. India makes that second list, can't project power, it's on its own. And with the exception of the Pakistan question, it's pretty much going to get left alone unless it decides to go on a little foray in the Persian Gulf, which could get really interesting really fast. But your opinion on Argentina brings me to a final question, and that is how do you see this kind of regionalization also in terms of currency or commodities mm -hmm. blocks? Because I remember that Argentina is now applying for mm -hmm. BRICS, and next month there will be a BRICS summit, and I suppose that they will announce Argentina's membership or whatsoever. Currently, the Russian leadership is meeting the, um, the, the BRICS bank president, the new one which is actually the former Brazilian president. So these kind of regional developments are quite striking also in terms of commodities currencies, you know, moving away from the United, you know, the US dollar, not so much because of the, their own weakness, but actually because the US dollar is so strong and that presents a lot of troubles, a lot of problems. Do you see this decade being controlled under the global dominance of the US dollar or we will see... Actually I think the US dollar is only going to become more Let me start by saying any international organization of which China and India are both members is one that doesn't do anything because they have different opinions on everything that matters. That includes this currency talk. And if you want to have a new reserve currency, there's a few things you need. You need an absolutely massive amount of currency to lubricate the trade. That eliminates any sort of international partnership. And now you're only talking about the yen, the yuan, the US dollar, and the euro. You need a country that is not involved in international trade from its own point of view. It can't be important to it. So in the case of China, where you're talking 40% of GDP is directly or indirectly linked to trade, they would manipulate the currency day in, day out to get what they want, like they're doing now, like they always have done. The Europeans confiscated insured bank deposits, so no one trusts the euro to be a currency of exchange. And the yen tried this back in the 1980s and got burned. It'll never do it again. Uh, you also have to have a system that isn't going to monetize like mad. And yes, the United States has monetized, but China has done it so to a factor of five more. And the currency, I'm sorry, the total money supply in China is over double that of the United States, despite the fact that it's not a trade currency. So there, there's no combination of currencies, no individual currency out there that work. And if countries tried to pool and do a joint currency, who runs it? because they're going to run it for themselves. If you have an independent authority, that will be the most bribed person on the planet. So there's, there's nothing about this that is going anywhere. And in the world we're moving to, where international trade links break, it is even more important to have a singular store of value that doesn't care about the day-to-day -day value. So ironically, the less trade there is in the world, the more important it's going to be for everyone to have access to the US dollar. Which means if you think the United States has gotten a little bullying and with the Russians on currency policy of late, just wait till there's no global trade system to support and the Americans can really let rip. Ladies and gentlemen, 
Peter Zion, The End of the World is Just the Beginning, Mapping the Collapse of Globalization. This is the most recent book of Peter. Peter is a geopolitical strategist. Thank you very, very much for taking the time and taking part in this episode. My pleasure.